You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. With downloads approaching the million mark, and an archival library numbering in the thousands, the Yeshiva of Newark podcast has been striving to continuously upgrade our content, professionalize our audio sound, along with altering approaches in light of much-appreciated listener feedback. I firmly believe that a niche has been carved out that resonates with many on the wide spectrum of observant Jews. This explains why we continually rank high in independent online lists of top yeshiva podcasts. That proud edifice is in real danger of toppling and disappearing. We need the help of our listeners to continue to record and edit to promote a product that has been a balm and instructor to so many. Just $36 as a minimum donation from a thousand of you out there will keep us afloat as a new arc of straight, intelligent, humorous discussion, lectures, debate, and inquiry, while the destructive waters of ignorance and identity politics, cyberbullying crash around us. Your generous contributions will seal and galvanize this arc till it comes to a satisfying rest in an era of Moya Heralding Mashiach, Mpeira, Biamenu, Amen. And now, Emeritus Rex. Forty years of this is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Ruvain Yoshua Pupko of Beth Israel, Beth Aaron, the synagogue that makes Cote St. Luke truly a Jewish haven. When you're in Montreal, make sure to stop there and Hang out with Rabbi Pupko. You will find him the most engaging of personalities. I, yeah, no, no, that's terribly wrong. I don't want I, I, everyone's <laughs> welcome, but no one should talk to me. I'm not pleasant. No, nobody. You know, you know, you know. For an unpleasant son of a gun, you definitely engage in many, many pleasantries because I understand that you uh, this week officiated at a uh, a ceremony, a wedding ceremony in Eretz Yisrael of the children of two families, two Montreal families. I know that you have an interesting report about your recent trip to Eretz Yisrael. Yeah, as you said, uh, there was a wonderful family from our show that uh, made Aliyah, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago, and uh, maybe more. Uh, their son, who is currently serving in the Israeli army, who has served in the ongoing conflict, um, had met a girl who uh, also from our show who was there, Studying for the year, and uh, they got they got engaged. The wedding took place a few nights ago, Monday night in Israel, and it was a remarkable uh, event. I mean, it was a very moving wedding because not only was the young man, the Chatan, recently serving in the army and, and in the conflict, but uh, his army unit showed up. And uh, right at the top of the chuppah, I didn't officiate alone. There was a, a, a rabbi. A, another rabbi there as well. And the, and the name of a fallen comrade in arms was invoked with, uh, and the, the mood shifts to a really crushing sadness at the invocation of this young man's name. But um, minutes later, uh, it was as if four and a half months of profound tension was given a release and there was an explosion of joy, which characterized the rest of the evening and uh, remarkable young people really wonderful young people who were there to celebrate the wedding of their buddy. And it was a really a wonderful thing to see these, uh, these soldiers who halfway through the, the uh, wedding celebration put on the T-shirt of their unit. And uh, it was really nice to see. It was a beautiful evening. 
I was there two months ago. It's very different now. Uh, the stores are full. The restaurants are open. Traffic is back. But there are reminders of the war everywhere. I mean, every billboard, even product labeling, uh, you know, there are reminders everywhere. And if you go to the hotels where the displaced are, you know, are living, obviously, it's not just a reminder. It's uh, the tangible ongoing hardship of, of war is, is, is right in front of you. You know, if you meet with families of, uh, of hostages or families of fallen soldiers in, or, or even families of serving soldiers, life isn't normal. No. You know, I, it, what, what I discovered recently from my children who live in Eretz Yisrael is that many of those hotel evacuees that I spent time with at the beginning of the war have been, they have found for them empty apartments and, and that have been being built throughout the country. We talk about the tremendous amount of philanthropy that has enveloped these people that have been displaced, but it's also been inventive philanthropy. They are finding homes and places to live. But some some communities have made the decision to stay together as a unit in the hotels. There's a, you know, there's all different varieties of stories. A small number, but a, some a very small number, had left the country immediately after October 7th and have now returned. They went to families and they went to join, you know, to live with families outside for a while. They, they've come back. And there's, again, every variation of the story is there. But uh, there's still uh, tens and tens of thousands of people who aren't living at home. In previous years, when we've come to this period that entering into the Purim and giving period, I, I think we want to remind our listeners that they don't have to search far to find places to give their tzedakah monies this year. In terms of Matanos Lovionim, there are people who are who really do not have normal housing accommodations and have uh, various various uh, responsibilities. That uh, I know that you, you consult your rabbonim and all the wonder wonderful places that monies can be given to to help these people. You know, I'm speaking to you here on Arab Shabbos, uh, Rabbi, and there was uh, yesterday. Uh, an event that seems like it's being going to be turned into again a international crisis type of event. Even if you know people embrace the truth of that story, the terrible tragedy in Gaza City, meaning the truth of the story is that overwhelmingly the people whose lives were lost were lost in the crush and in the stampede, not killed by Israeli soldiers. The stampede had to do with they had assembled around an aid truck, right, that was giving out food and supplies. And then I think the Israeli soldiers attempted to create some sense of order, and then they were surrounded. Listen, we've seen this, these kinds of tragedies before with, with crowds reacting. And anyway, the point is, even if, you know, direct culpability is not laid at the foot of the Israeli soldiers, and again, that's a big if, the fact that it happened, the fact that the people there are so desperate and that this kind of stampede occurred with the appearance of food trucks will itself increase pressure on Israel. And by the way, this is the exact hope and strategy of Hamas, which is to create a situation where even though Israel wins every encounter on the battlefield and in every alleyway and in every tunnel, even if Israel wins all of that, and even that what Hamas is banking on is that they will be saved by international pressure on uh, on Israel. And when they 
see the demonstrations and they hear about Biden, I don't know, apologizing to our voters in Michigan. And they hear about the United Nations and the things they're doing. And they read about the International Court of Justice and the proceedings and everything else. When they see the demonstrations in Israel, pressuring the government to do more to release hostages, they believe that uh, Sinwar believes he can sit in a tunnel surrounded by hostages with his arms folded and the rest of the world will do his, their, you know, his work for him by pressuring Israel. Because remember, all Hamas needs in order to proclaim victory is simple survival. Yes, uh, 20 of 24 Hamas brigades have been eliminated. Uh, the majority of Hamas fighters are dead or wounded. But if a, uh, if a core of uh, Hamas leadership and fighters remain alive in Rafa, Sinwar can proclaim victory. The very fact that it happened, the very fact that Gazans are, are so desperate and therefore, you know, the, you had to stampede in order to get food, uh, will increase pressure on Israel and emboldens Hamas, uh, in the, can, in the hostage negotiations to demand more and it emboldens Hamas to believe that they can survive. Before we move away from life in Eretz Yisrael that you just experienced recently, you know that the municipal elections were held during the period that you were in Eretz Yisrael. Did that register with you at all? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting to see. I mean, you saw the campaign posters up in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. The mayors of the big cities were reelected, Moshe Leon and Ron Chodai. The other cities, there were some reversals, uh, but um, I'm not sure, I, I, you know, if municipal elections are in any way a harbinger of things to come in other elections. I, I think it's a very different dynamic. What's interesting, though, is that, you know, we talk about ignoring what's the bigger picture. You know, the, the local fighting about these elections, it seems so petty compared to the big issues that are confronting the country. Right. You know, the, you know, listen, municipal issues, local issues are, you know, are, are different. And, uh, some of them, sometimes they have to do with larger issues like, you know, religious influence and other issues. Sure. I, and I know that the, you know, there was many uh, calls from Gidola Yisrael to go out and vote and uh, support a certain candidate, whether it was a mayor in Elad or in Ramat Beit Shemesh or other places. And there were even demonstrations and mass, you know, voting. And again, as much as, you know, as Slifkin has pointed out, you know, here they were, you know, despite not connecting uh, to the larger battle that's happening uh, outside of Eretz Yisrael or in, in, in Gaza, they were definitely ready to join, you know, to be involved in the uh, political process within their own little cities. And I think it's sort of very telling how you wonder, well, should, you know, what happened to the learning of Torah, right? You know, the idea that, you know, this is how we're protecting our country. It would seem that in terms of the fight against this external terrible enemy, Torah is the only answer. But in terms of who's going to be the mayor to decide what sort of stipends and what sort of uh, advantages we're going to get, you have to go out physically and go and vote and spend time in, 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 uh, in, the, in the line. So I think it is as much, you know, I think it does say something about an element, I believe, of subtle hypocrisy. I know you don't need much to to agree with me on this. Yeah, but, but I'll tell you more importantly, maybe, I don't know, maybe not. Gantz, who is now part of the uh, unity government uh, and others in Israel are talking more forcefully about 
changing the draft rules. And there's, you know, the case of the before the Supreme Court now, uh, there's going to be enormous and, and growing pressure uh, on any future Israeli government and actually on the present Israeli government to uh, limit the exemptions granted to the Haredi community. Israel needs soldiers. Uh, there is, they need the manpower. They do. Uh, that's one element of the narrative. The other is that when so many boys have fallen and so many families are sacrificing, uh, you know, it doesn't even begin, you know, sacrificing. It doesn't begin to tell the story of those who sure. have lost uh, their sons or fathers or husbands. It's um, that that alone is going to put enormous pressure. Again, many members of the Haredi community understand this, are very sensitive to it, have begun to speak about compromise. There are sane voices in the Haredi community, but some of the voices uh, are, are 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 frozen in time. I mean, it's uh, as if they're talking about you know as if it's still the 1970s, using language that hasn't changed at all. It, it, it's sad. It's, it's sad that uh, uh, that after all this time, and with the vibrant flourishing of the Haredi community in Israel, and all of the governmental support given to. Uh, the yeshivas and to the coils and everything else that people still employ uh, anachronistic language about the government of the state of Israel, about serving in the army. The army is much more uh, sensitive to religious concerns than it's ever been. Uh, it's been proven time and time again that Haredi soldiers can serve and maintain their religious integrity and that there are alternative uh means of service as well that should be available. Uh, the, the status quo is is untenable. And those in the Haredi community who insist on a on stubbornly holding on to the status quo, I, I think in the long term are only doing damage to the Haredi community. I mean, the more uh, alienated the rest of Israel feels from the Haredi community, the more challenging it's going to be for Haredi in the future. Not every government that's going to be elected in the future is going to have religious parties holding the balance of power, and and they won't be able to sustain the funding and support that they've enjoyed till now, unless they're able to more equitably share the burdens of, of living in Israel. I would have thought this sort of aphorism that is so appropriate in the United States that all politics is local I would have thought that that didn't hold true in Eretz Yisrael. And yet I see that Rabdov Landau, you know, issued a, a statement that was videotaped that said someone who doesn't go out and vote is like he's not putting on tefillin. Right? You, know, you have to go out and you have to support this candidate that the Gedele Yisrael want as part of the mayor. This is so, so crucial. Uh, you know, and I'm thinking about how is it really going to make that great of a difference, uh, whether it's, you know, you, you know this, this candidate or the other? And, and it showed me that there was a ostrich-like tendency to say, well, in my city, this is where I'm at. I'm looking at life in my city and what benefits I can get from it. Who's going to deal with this city in a way that I will be able to learn and my kids will be able to have what they need and the housing will be available it's sort of like the existential threat to the country is sort of like not in their consciousness. Although this program will probably only be heard by our listeners sometime in Parshas Vayakil, which is next week, 
we, right, Pope and I can't ignore the fact that this Shabbos will be the Kriya of, I think, one of the one of the most challenging parshiot to read and to talk about, which is Klal Yisrael's Chet by the Egel Azov, uh, which, according to Chazal, still has ramifications today. Um, we are still, in a way, paying for that sin of somehow deciding that we were we wanted to serve in a way this golden calf, this molten image. And I know rabbis probably every uh, year on Parshas Kisisa have to somehow speak about this chet uh, in some way. The fact that the Jewish people sinned and built the Egel Azov is obviously uh, well-known and, and tragic. But I don't know, personally, I've always been more fascinated by the response to it, by the Shvirus Haluchos, the breaking of the Luchos. It's an extraordinary act. I mean, the last, uh, or, or the next to last Rashi in Duchomish says, Lene Kol Yisrael, the greatest thing Moshe ever did was break the Luchos. Right, all the great things he did, Lene Kol Yisrael, what was it? The breaking of the Luchos. If you look in the Medrash, Rishinim, there's a wide spectrum of view, views about what happened there. Although the Pesach says, Vayashlech, he threw them out of his hands. There are Madrash that was trying to tone it down by saying he can no longer carry them, right? The miracle of his ability to carry evaporated upon seeing the Egelazov and what the Jews had done. There are those who uh, talk about it. You know, it's very interesting how it's spoken of and, and what the breaking of the Luchos means. You know, there's an incredible Medrash which says that the reason Moshe broke the Luchos was his way of saying to God, Chiber, uh, I believe is the language. Then Moshe Rabbeinu turns to God and says, the Jewish people have sinned. Now watch me. I'm going to sin. And if you're going to punish me, punish them. If you're going to forgive, forgive me, then forgive them. And Moshe throws down the luchos according to the Medrash so that he too will be a sinner. It's an unbelievable Medrash, Medrash Rabbah. Others, I think like the Meshachachma, talk about the lesson of breaking the luchos, which was that the the physical, even if it's the handiwork of God himself, the, the physical uh, is not of, of of lasting significance. And in the in extreme demonstration of anti-paganism, right, Moshe breaks the luchos. The other more subtle interpretation is really a brilliant idea, and, and, and it's profound. It's not easy to articulate. Is what was the alternative? And again, we sometimes forget ourselves that to ask ourselves that question. What would have happened had he not broken them? And um, what would have happened, I think, is clear. They would have gotten rid of the golden calf, and they would have put the luchos on the pedestal, and they would have worshipped the luchos. And when Moshe breaks the luchos, he is sparing the luchos, the indignity of being transformed into an idol. And what that means is, what does it mean to turn Torah into an Avodah Zarah? And that is a very interesting question. You can turn even Torah into an Avodah Zarah. And that means when the Torah becomes an end in itself, rather than a means to an end. That's what it means to be the worship of, uh, the focus of idol worship. It's the, it's an end in itself. And Torah is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end of closeness to a Kaddish Baruch. But when you fetishize the Torah, uh, to the detriment of its ultimate goal and purpose. That's what it means to turn Torah into Vodazara. And we all have tragically too many examples of people who turn Torah into one of Vodazara and therefore desecrate the Torah.
clearly the, the event of Shvir Saluchas was uh, a, a fundamental one. It was it's it's enshrined in our history as one of the terrible things that occurred on the seventeenth of Tammuz. But I think that what sometimes gets subsumed by the ego and the Shvir Saluchos is the new Luchos. You know, Parshas Kisisa uh, has so much in it. Not only that the story, but the but the pleas that Moshe Rabbeinu utters towards God, it also talks about a method of restoration. And I, I think that one of the, the 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 key aspects to understand the the sin of the Egel Azov is to own up that sometimes we're not ready for the way the events have that we're experiencing them. There's a disconnect between what we are meant to process and what we are capable of processing. Klal Yisrael was artificially inflated through the year of miraculous events in Mitzrayim and capped by uh, hearing God's voice at Har Sinai to assume a level of of perception and continued existence that really could not be sustained. Uh, you need to earn the, where you come from. As much as God is ready to help us, the Jewish people should not have been there. They perhaps needed that experience to be part of their collective memory. But the Luchos breaking and, 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 and now reconstructed in a different way. Yes, it's not material San Pirion that is from God himself, but it's actually human material that God writes upon. That's a much stronger example. No, what you're saying is absolutely brilliant. But I, I, I would go one step further. Yeah, I would of course say you that would. Of course this you is would. part of No, no, it's a motif in the Torah. I mean, maybe it's an overstatement, but where God creates a perfect reality, destroys it, right, or allows it to be destroyed, and then we hearken back. In other words, Adam is put in Gan Eden. Yes. But then he's expelled. And we always say, we want to go back. On a micro level of the Jewish people, we stand at Harsinai, we're all hear the voice of a Kodesh Baruch Hu, and then the Luchos are destroyed and we hearken back to it. So, in other words, the model of perfection is presented to us, not just model, we live it, but then it's taken and then we understand what a better world looks like, and we strive, maybe with well, with with futility, but we strive to restore. And that's what we do: we strive to restore Ganed, we strive to restore Harsina. And 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 we we have to realize that the Luchoshnios, despite the fact that they cannot reach the 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 type of level of the Luchos Rishonos, they are where we're at. And they represent a more realistic way to grow and to develop. And I think that's part of coming to terms, keeping that imagery of that, of the, of the, of that Luchos, of seeing Moshe Rabbeinu coming down and then recognizing that we have to earn our way back. Uh, To me, it's similar to, you know, approaching the Kruvim. Uh, As you say, Adam is, is, is driven out of Gan Eden, but he has to come back and the, and the Kruv, as the Torah writes, has the Lat Cherva Misapeches, is holding this sword that is twirling 
<laughs> in order to see if we are able to sort of figure out how to get back there. But but we need to recognize that our efforts and our involvement in the Luchos Hashniyos, you know, as 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 you mentioned the Rishonim, they say that the Luchos Hashniyos that is where you have the essence of all the Torah Shabalpeh. Right? The Torah Shabalpeh, the, the stuff that we have to sort of figure out in a backwards way using our mind and, and, and intellectual abilities is really our connection. This is what we contribute. You know, we contribute the, the lumdus, the abstract thinking, the, the ways of understanding that are in, in, in intensely human, but divinely driven. And I think that's part of the, perhaps a, a, a message that we can uh, add instead. We are definitely, I think, in, in a way, just to cap here, October 7th was, was clearly a, 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 a day of shvira, a day of destruction. I think it behooves us to, to, to try to reconstruct. And you know, let's hope that, that we are moving that way to a, to a, 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 a newly, f- a different fashion way that I think uh, I'm sure you join me in, in, in this great hope that, that we could talk to have a kapara. I'll say it again. If people believe that we did our avoda last Elul and Aserisime Chuva, and that God took our kapara and gave us, gave us kapara shlema, they are wrong. <laughs> the the Rabbi Shalom sent us a message and we need to we need to have a, a this this type of working on ourselves a yom kippur type moment and i think that that, that can only come you know, by keeping the stark reality of of what happened on october 7th uh, straight in our minds the same way claudius row will always remember etched in their collective memory the the breaking of the luchas well that's it my friends a lot of rabbinic flourish here for you as we come to this big finish take care my friends we'll catch you next week be well Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please take a moment to share this or any of the many episodes available on our platform with friends in order to help grow our community. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.